Hey, Christina, you've got exams going on, right? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, so our exam period is around two weeks or so. So I had two exams the first day of exams and one exam on the last day of exams. So I'm just basically waiting. Yeah, the thing you don't realize when, especially when you're an undergrad, is just how much free time you have. Now, these days, if I have like maybe an hour to read, like on a work night, if I have an hour to read, uh, I consider that a great luxury. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas back then, it's like you have all day to read and you never do it. Yeah. I mean, you might because you're, you're probably a better student than I was, but. I'm like, I'm like slowly just realizing just the amount of luxuries I have as like a person without responsibilities right now. Christina, so <laughs> what year are you? I'm a junior. I'm a junior. So I'm almost on my way out, but not quite yet. But I do think you need that lounging around period of time. Because I mean, like, if you're like 21 and, and you're like the kind of person who like does timetables today, like, like nobody wants to hang out with, with a person like that. So you, you like that's the time for you to just uh, do whatever you want. And then as you get more like structure, then you start to become much more efficient with your time. You just need some time to like incubate and develop and stuff like that. But do you know what you're doing this summer? Yeah, I'm going to be back in France, actually. Oh, cool. Okay. The idea is to um, senior thesis research. The idea is to, like, keep on um, pestering, like, host sites to give me data. Are you going to be doing work similar to what you did last summer? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it is based off of what I did last summer. Um, but hopefully I'll be able to figure out a quantitative, quantitative way to do it. I guess you're going to be, like, a... You're going to feel right at home now, huh? Since you already spent the summer there. Yeah, that's that's the hope. Escape from Plan A. I see a lot of white guys making Korean food, and I'll be honest, it pisses the shit out because it's everywhere now. Kimchi, this kimchi, that. I'm like, well, you weren't like ostracized in school, elementary school, because everyone thought when they visited your house it smelled like garbage, right? Like they didn't have to endure emotional hardship, and now it's cool. And but when you close your eyes and taste it, does it always taste like it lacks that? I can't like it. It's impossible for me to like. I am sorry. I can't like See? it. Hi, and welcome to Escape from Plan A, Plan A Magazine's podcast. I'll be your host tonight, Oxford, and tonight I'm joined by Eliza. Hello. And Christina. Hi. And tonight we're going to talk about uh, cultural appropriation, which always comes up. It's always a relevant topic. Uh, it recently came up in the news because of the the whole like Chipao dress thing. So, uh, Eliza, you want to just uh, give just the brief facts of what happened with the, this Chipao thing? I, I think people are kind of maybe sick of talking about it, but in case uh, for some reason if people are totally unknown. I think at this point, everyone knows what happened. Um, so a Twitter user, um, he tweeted, he retweeted this, um, this girl's prom picture, uh, and he said that my culture is not your prom dress and from there it just exploded and everybody everybody was weighing in on it um with majority of mainstream media taking the uh the the girls side and jeremy lamb instead was very demonized and people who sided with jeremy lamb like a lot of asian americans who spoke up against her wearing the prom dress because it was cultural appropriation were also demonized um and that's about where we are now yeah and that phrase like my culture is not your costume that was is very reminiscent of what happened at yale uh a couple of years ago with Halloween. and I'm going to say this, Oxford. You, you just mentioned that this is a topic that never goes away. I think it's one where it's one of those topics that doesn't go away because the goalposts keep moving. Like when people talk about it, 
um, like you said, it comes up every Halloween, but it also comes up every fashion week and it comes up every Victoria's Secret fashion show. Like that company just can't get it right. And then it happens during the Grammys or the MTV Awards when the non-black singer will win a Grammy or, or, or some sort of award for singing R&B or, or hip hop. And then it comes up again in like summer music festival season because of all the people like, like at um, Burning Man or Coachella with all the, the Native American hair, headdresses and the tribal wear. And now it's coming up because of prom season. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so big is that it's, it's like a new event where this is coming up. I think an important thing to do is to really delve into why people are upset because people will come up with a lot of kind of like brainy, um, abstract reasons about what's like morally right and not. But this obviously gets a lot of people very emotional. And I think uh, to get a very honest look at what uh, makes people react the way that they do, uh, I think would be much more helpful. So, I mean, my take on this is that this is really about a fear of replacement because I think the fear is for a lot of minorities is they essentially don't trust this like or like assimilationist system because they think that the only way they're welcome into this is if they bring something to the table that uh, basically the white people running the show wants. Usually it's like food or, or it's, it's, you know, their bodies or, uh, you know, cultural festivities, etc. And their only value to inclusion is if they bring this. Now, if you uh, separate those things from the actual people themselves, then, and, and like white people can pretty much take what they want whenever they want, then why do you, why would they even want the people? I feel like I have a slightly different approach to it because I don't think that the anger is that logical. Like, I've talked to a lot of people about it and there's, I think there's a really logical argument for why cultural appropriation shouldn't be a problem, which is that it happens all the time and it's basically about the free flowing of, of ideas, which is technically a liberal value. Yeah, that's what David Frum said in The Atlantic today, yeah. Yeah, but it's really... I think it's really about this insecurity of ownership in general, the concept of ownership, because especially with Asian Americans, I feel like we are characterized by kind of this lack of ownership. We don't really have, we don't really have a legacy in this country. We don't have wealth, like generations of wealth. We have to kind of create our own wealth. We don't have culture in this country. We don't have a history in this country. So what, what do we really own? And then um, I think that a lot of the times when you see a white girl getting celebrated for wearing a chi pao, it's like we don't even own something. We, we don't even own something that we should own. One of the things that I, I think is the problem is that white liberals, it's, it is mostly white liberals who are weighing in on it. And I think that they just can't get past this. They think that they are, they honestly think that they are appreciating it. And in doing so, they're promoting diversity. Christina, to your point, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's the, the fear of not owning your own uh, a culture. Uh, and if it can be so easily taken away, then what are we, right? We're pretty much just like empty husks of a people with whatever uh, makes us kind of like unique uh, is easily taken away, commodified, and we're, we're like, you know, we're not even needed anymore. Yeah. And I think another thing that goes up in the conversation, too, is just that, like, I think a lot of the times we don't view this as something that makes us unique. Like, it's something that is to be ashamed of. In a lot of true. Ways. I think that was definitely true when we were younger, but now we are seeing 
the tides kind of change. Because David Chang says this in Ugly Delicious, in which he says for much of his life when he was growing up, he felt embarrassed about uh, like his like ethnic cuisine. Now that it's become uh, more popular, uh, more profitable and everything, suddenly he sees a lot of other people, especially white people, cashing in. And something in him emotionally just feels as though if you didn't suffer through what I suffered when I was younger, then you have no right at least for like uh, maybe like a, a time period, you know, it's like hands off. We suffer, therefore we get to benefit. I think it goes back to what I was saying before. Like the reason that that pe- the white people think that they are actually appreciating it and promoting diversity is because in the past when they did these things, they they got away with it for so long. They weren't questioned. Remember in the 90s when Asian culture and fashion was pretty much in style? Um and it was never really much of a controversy seeing it in like movies or music videos and like clothing catalogs. And so like it was never questioned. Suddenly minorities expect acknowledgement and rightfully so. But there's there is so much pushback because people have not only gotten away with it. White people have not only gotten away with it for so long, they were just praised for it. Like if you read old, old magazines like from the early 90s or the late 90s. It's really like even white people wearing dreads was seen as like so progressive. Well, there's a there's a period, I think, in which something is so on the fringe that any acknowledgement of it is right. So appropriation wasn't seen as appropriation back then. It really was seen as like, oh, my God, this is they're so open minded. Yeah. But then that quickly morphs into, well, now that it's become especially if it becomes profitable and money becomes involved now, who has the, the kind of ownership over that? Then, then that becomes the issue, and then this idea of like suffering. I think um, there, I think there's this anger that like white people should not be allowed to get all the benefits of of a different culture, yet none of the downsides. Because I mean, like it, it's fun for them to like run uh, like a Vietnamese restaurant or wear this or that, but at the end of the day, they still look white, so they'll get that benefit. Like, like there's this fundamental sense of injustice. I think that they they get to have it both ways. The first time I ever heard the term cultural appropriate appropriation was probably in probably in like the 2000s where suddenly there were all these white rappers coming out and winning awards and making tons of money. Uh, there's one thing I I think well I have to mention. Uh this was obviously a white girl and a dress. So I think it does have a gendered reaction. Um and there was a Twitter uh I want to give credit to somebody who said his name. He goes by Ash Sung, I think, uh, is his handle. And he had this uh, tweet storm in which he said, uh, as an Asian guy, this doesn't get me as viscerally uh, as it would like uh, an Asian girl. But, you know, uh, I want to support uh, like Asian women who feel offended by it. So I I was wondering if you, uh, especially you, Liza, because you had like a pretty strong reaction to this. Like, did you feel something as as an Asian woman seeing a, a white girl do this? Because, uh, like, uh, frankly, as an Asian guy, like, Asian guys are so used to this. Because, uh, like, it, like the typical weeb is, is a white dude. So um, it's not that we're okay with it. It's just that it, it's, like, happened to us a million times already. So to me, seeing this was kind of like seeing a white guy with a samurai sword. It's like, yeah, lame. Um, let's make fun of him for maybe half a day, but let's just move on. But this thing kept going on. And at least uh, from my uh, experience on Twitter, it seemed like the most angry people, even though it was, uh, like, the original tweet was maybe by an Asian guy. See, mostly like Asian women were taking it very 
um, like personally and talking about you know them wearing certain dresses when they were younger and getting made oh, fun of it. Oh, I definitely think it's a gendered reaction. I definitely think that seeing a white girl wearing Asian clothing and getting so much praise and getting the Twitter verification and getting all of the support of mainstream media was yeah, it definitely it definitely provoked a lot of us. I was like kind of like off all the media recently just because of like finals and stuff like that, but my sister actually brought it up to me. So then it was like, it was really interesting because I think my uh, initial reaction to it was generally, I think with cultural appropriation, I think it's such like a difficult topic to talk about as an Asian American because there are some cases where we might be perceived as the perpetrators when I don't think that's necessarily the right reading of it. And then there's, in this case, we were seen as the victims of it. So I, I, I guess like generally my perception of it is a little bit like, why is cultural appropriation an issue in the first place? Which is not like a mainstream opinion. But I did talk to my sister about it, who had a very emotional reaction to this. And basically she was like to me, she basically asked me like, what is your first reaction when you see a white girl wearing a chi-pao? And I was like, well, doesn't she realize that she looks silly? Like, I don't think she looks good. Like, I think she looks kind of funny. And then she was like, well, why do you feel that way? And then I basically said to her, like, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Like, I just think it looks weird. And then she, she basically said to me, like, it's probably because you've internalized something against your home culture because of this, like, push to assimilate. Like, you're so entrenched in not being able to see the beauty of your own culture that you can't even look at it through the point of view of a white person. Like, you can't even see, like, why this could possibly be, like, exotic or beautiful or whatever. You just think it looks silly. And I was like, that's probably true. And then I kind of, like, asked a bunch of my other female friends, would you ever wear a chi pao even after this incident? And then all of them were like, no. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, definitely not. And so then I guess, like, the initial reaction of this is just... So I think it's, I think that my initial reaction was that mostly it was from reading the threads. I think it's really hard to stomach watching someone who is part of a race that enjoys legal and financial superiority. They, like, they cherry-picked what they wanted from our cultures, while the actual members of our cultures are so demonized for it, like Christina said. It's like we've internalized this, like, this this sort of, like, a shame. Christina, I want to ask you, so when your sister said that you should have found that dress beautiful, was she trying to say that you should have found that dress beautiful and then consequently you should have gotten angry that this outsider was stealing something beautiful from your culture? Was that the point she was trying to make? The point is, I think, that outsiders view it as beautiful, but you are... So you are so ashamed of it because that's how you were socialized to be that you can't even find like you can't find it beautiful. Well, I think something can be beautiful or cool, but then out of context look ridiculous. Like you can go you can put on a beautiful suit. But if you like go to the beach or like a casual party, you'll still look ridiculous. So I I think like I don't think if you thought it looked silly, that was an automatic indicator of internalized racism. Yeah, I mean, I think that's possible, but it's also like. I'm not even sure that a lot of Asian Americans find it beautiful on its own. I, I'm not, I can't speak for all Asian Americans, but again, I asked, I asked some of, my, some of my friends, like, if this became like a normal thing, like, would you, would you wear it? And then a lot of them just automatic reaction was no. 
I mean, it could, it could be either way. I don't think I necessarily thought it was just silly because it was a white girl. I also think it was also silly in the context of prom. I'm going to say that because in the context of prom, it does look silly. I want to blame the parenting. I want to blame their upbringing for this. I want to say it's because she grew up in Utah, which is really a white state. She probably saw a bunch of people wearing offensive Halloween costumes and never gave it a second thought. She probably saw all that growing up. And it's because like their own parents and their own grandparents and the people around them, they never bothered to express any genuine interest in the origin of these outfits. So they never heard anyone questioning any of this. So it's like she was taken by, so she's like taken by surprise that people would have an issue with it. I want to run a little thought experiment. Would this have been acceptable if, if let's say, the guy was Asian? In terms of if the guy viewing the... No, if the guy she was like taking the picture with her like date was Asian, uh, let's say Chinese, and she was wearing this, would that be okay? I'm going to say... Probably because it's like having an invitation to do it. You have to be in, it's like she, you have to be engaged with that culture already to appreciate it. That way you're not stealing it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's kind of like the difference between like if you get henna done for, for Coachella by a white owned company, then it's appropriation. But if you get henna done at um, your South Asian friend's wedding, then it's not. So if she had like, if she had an Asian boyfriend or a Chinese boyfriend and they went to prom together and she decided to wear that, then I feel like that's an invite. Going off on my, I'm basing this on my theory of replacement. I would still say no, because if you, like, if you're angry at this because, uh, from, like, deep down, you don't want, like, to be replaced by a white girl or a white guy or whatever, I still don't think it's okay, because I don't think an Asian individual has the right to essentially, if, if her boyfriend or whatever was Asian and he, like, gave her access to this dress, he, I think, in, essentially is erasing an Asian woman out of the picture, taking it out of, proper context because if this is all about context this belonging to like the right people i don't think that one individual asian person can suddenly rearrange it so that half the gender is essentially erased from the picture and like, it, like yeah if your partner maybe have some some permission to it but i mean if you look at the record of like interracial relationships i mean that is no, absolutely no guarantee that it's a proper appreciation right i mean we've seen fetishes go uh, in all sorts of directions. So, I mean, that's that's my take. I think if you are angry about this from from like that replacement point of view, then really the only way it's acceptable is if both people are Asian and of the appropriate ethnicity. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure realistically an Asian guy would even want his white girlfriend to do that. <laughs> I think part of the issue with thinking about it in terms of like what if it was an Asian girl in a cheap house or whatever is that like I do think that the assimilationist tendency tendencies and also the separation the distance that at least me as an asian american i feel towards my mother culture is like so big even the thought of wearing a cheap hat to prom really wouldn't even cross my head so i mean I'm, I'm i'm not an asian male but i feel like if i was an asian male and my white girlfriend did, did something like that i would probably ask her a lot of questions how do you view me like do you view me as American or like do you like me just because I'm Asian like I think that there would be a lot of weird questions that would arise if that situation would happen I want to bring in a point that uh, teen uh, has made a few times I'll give credit to the originator <laughs> but he has said that this is about white people using Asians as a bellwether to see how far off the rails identity politics ha has gotten and I mentioned that David from article 
uh, in the Atlantic. In case you guys, in case the listeners don't know, David Frum, I think was like a W. Bush speechwriter from back in the day. Now he's in his own little like lonely tower as, as like a, an anti-Trump conservative, probably one of the most irrelevant political categories out there. But he recently uh, wrote uh, something in the Atlantic saying everybody appropriates. And actually he leads off with something that happened at Oberlin a few years ago. This was kind of an infamous incident in which some Asian students uh, Vietnamese, I think, specifically students, complain about the crappy banh mi in the cafeteria. And he leads off with that. And I do think that's not an accident. I think what they're, what the implicit message is, like, we, yeah, we know, like, like the black people and the Latinos, I, they complain all the time. The Asians were, were the good ones. You know, they, they always supported us. They, they played ball. But now look at them. Even they're going crazy. Doesn't that indicate that something's a little off the rails in our society? I think, like, the issues of Asian appropriation is just, like, so difficult to place because I think automatically actually when somebody says cultural appropriation and Asians, I automatically think of Asians and hip hop and like Rich Brian and K-pop and hip hop and just all of those things. I mean, Christina, you, you're a big hip hop fan. So yeah, maybe you can talk more about the intersection of Asians and hip hop. Yeah, it's really misunderstood because I think that even within the black community, the idea of an Asian person being into hip hop for a reason other than it looks cool or it's trendy or something like that is actually like really startling to them. And maybe that's because there's so few of us. But I think that it's kind of a reductive thing to say, like, let's say this guy is wearing like a t-shirt or like a hat or streetwear or like adopting some sort of like hip-hop-ish accent. I think, and it's an Asian guy, I kind of think it's unfair to just point that in as like appropriation. I think you can have a genuine interest in hip-hop as an Asian person just because the themes that come up in hip-hop are really highly applicable to the stereotypical Asian experience, such as just, like, survivalism, people rapping about, like, survival of the fittest or whatever. Like, if you go into, like, any competitive, highly Asian high school, I think those lyrics can match exactly what you feel pretty well yeah and eliza you tweeted about this i think uh well, what's her name uh Nicki minaj I, I think it's her is she the one with the, the chun li album yeah okay yeah and then um i think you tweeted something about how i mean isn't that appropriation yeah i mean i'm gonna say that chun li the character itself I, I mean no one's gonna be precious about that character you know like the video game street fighter is just filled with racist stereotypes but i think that just just the idea of it and like the costume it's like Nicki Minaj herself has she has called so many people out for cultural appropriation that it's like for her to to put out a video and a song like Shun Li why does she think that she can get away with it yeah there does seem to be an unequal exchange I mean I had no problem with that or if like some some like rap group wants to do like kung fu theme stuff. I mean, so long as it's like a two way exchange. But I mean, this we saw this happen with the the Jeremy Lin thing when he got the, the, dreadlocks. the dreadlocks, and yeah. then then Kenyon Martin like called him out on it, and then Jeremy Lin pretty much like totally KO'd him with with the thing about the the Chinese tattoos. And and like most people took Jeremy's side, but then of all people, on like like HuffPo, the this like I think Asian writer said something about I, I pretty much said that Asians cannot take black stuff but black people can take asian stuff that that seemed to be the i disagree with that with that or my interpretation of that article uh no i i disagree with 
that. I, I interpreted the article the same way. Yeah, and, and there's like, like, how is that fair, right? That just seems to be a totally arbitrary rule based pretty much on, on social power in, in America. Right. I mean, the way I saw it was that Jeremy Lin talked about it with his hairstylist and with his teammate, and he was embracing the culture and therefore had an invitation, which brings me to what I was saying, my point before, when you were saying, um, like, what if it was an Asian guy and his girlfriend wanted to wear uh, a cheap out to prom? I feel like if there's an invitation and a true embrace of the culture, then why not? Yeah, I guess the only uh, matter in, in that case is like, how, like, how do you show your true appreciate appreciation. I mean, I'm a big Jeremy Lin fan, so I've been I've been following his career for a while. So I do know that when uh, like Eric Garner uh, was was killed by the police, I think Lin was I think the first and perhaps only non-black player in the NBA to wear those uh, I can't breathe uh, shirts. I remember that he said that he talked it over with a lot of his, his black teammates, and yeah, it, so it wasn't just like oh I found this like one black friend who gave me permission to do this or even like say the N word. I think that's obviously too low a bar, but yeah, uh, yeah, I think there is perhaps a you like you show enough, then sure you you get to do it. I mean, some of these cultural signifiers have like they've caused people so much pain and trauma from being othered that I think that a lot of people of color would just prefer that white people stay away from their culture. If you go solely by the de the dictionary definition of appropriation and where we are culturally, then I would just say yes, like across the board, all appropriation is bad. But then if you do that, then it doesn't leave any way to pay homage or have a cultural exchange. Like I feel like, okay, in terms of music, for example, like Bruno Mars was a big deal a couple weeks ago. I think in music, it's like almost impossible to avoid some sort of appropriation in music. Black people have created pretty much every American form of music that we listen to today. It's like with Bruno Mars, I, I, I really defended him because by the definition of appropriation, the dictionary definition, he was not doing that. Like he has always acknowledged his influencers and who he draws inspiration from, which is not it's not the same as... What was he accused of doing? Sorry, I, I'm completely out of the loop on the Bruno Mars incident. After the Grammys, which he, he won a lot of Grammys this year, there was a video that went viral a few weeks ago, and a woman was making all these points about all the like, how she couldn't stand Bruno Mars, and she was making all these points about why he was a cultural appropriator and did not deserve... The, he didn't deserve all the awards and the recognition that he was getting. Because he was appropriating black certain culture, styles of music. Black that... culture and he's not black. So I think that I, I disagreed with it. Like I said, he's always acknowledged his influencers and his influences and who he draws inspiration from, unlike Katy Perry and Justin Timberlake, who never do that. Yeah, I think the classic example of uh, appropriation, just of involving Asians in general, is Wu-Tang Clan. But... I don't, I don't have an issue with that because I think it's like totally different. There's actually some sort of relevance of this culture to your life and to your self identity that you explicitly speak out about. So like, I think for the Wu-Tang Clan, they were saying that it's something in like the Kung Fu movies, there was something about brotherhood that really spoke to them and their experience. To me, I don't necessarily know, like, oh, is this just an excuse or whatever? But to me, that feels it could possibly happen. Also, the Wu Tang members, the Wu Tang members, when did that? When did um? When did Thirty Six Chambers come out? What was that? Ninety ninety four? 
around then. They weren't that young then either. They were like in the context of how they grew up in New York City, like kung fu movies were something that New York City people would watch growing up. They were at all the like the, the discount movie theaters. That's what they would play. And so people who grew up in New York City at a certain era, they grew up watching kung fu movies in theaters. And then also there was a channel in New York City that played like it was like all kung fu theater. And it's like it's it's very much of an era in New York City. Like it makes sense. Like, for example, in this particular case with the white girl wearing the cheap hat, if she almost if she wore the cheap hat like every day, yeah, and she said something <laughs> along the lines of the, like the dragon on this cheap. I, I, I don't really know. Well, what about this? What if the white girl who wore the cheap hat? What if she grew up in an enclave, like a Chinese enclave? What if what if all of her friends? wore that all the time like she attended weddings and other formal events and she saw people wearing that i mean one could say that she probably just wouldn't wear it to prom because she would know better but let's say she did that to, to be honest if that picture came up it's not like people would have probably said okay that that explains it right? i think i think they would just see the picture and then react to that because i think a lot of it is not really about her and like her being from utah which is a, which is a very white state i think i think as i said if you the the more stories i heard a lot of it people it was a lot of it was about themselves it was about themselves reliving a lot of their i think childhood memories so i mean it might have like swayed a few people at the edge but i think the, the anger would have still been there yeah i i think that the it's interesting to me because i actually felt that there was a lot of parallels between how um the news anchor i forget her name like cor- like responded to katie way and ashley the, banfield yeah, Ashley Banfield responded to Katie Way. Oh, your as, hero. Like, the, uh, <laughs> and, like, in the Ziz Ansari case, because if you look at it from, like, an objective standpoint, in some ways, this wearing of the cheap out does superficially symbolize an acceptance of Asianness in mainstream society, which is, I, I would argue, probably a good thing for Asian Americans, objectively. We can, we I can guess it's better whatever. than making fun of someone, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like in the Ziz Ansari case, like advocating for a more healthy dating culture is, regardless of how you do it, is arguably a good thing for females. But the anger isn't about logic. Like the anger was very visceral. And it was very much like, why do you get to do this? Why, why do you get to wear this dress and feel beautiful in it? Why do you get to feel offended if a guy does this to you? I think that a lot of people try to explain this in a logical way, but it's really difficult to explain this. Yeah, I think it's the same. It's the same visceral response that so many Asian women have when they are described as exotic. South Asians and Southeast Asians, like darker Asians, like were always talked about as tropical. So I think that even the word exotic, it's it's like some people don't understand, like they really don't understand why anyone would take offense to it. But if you really break it down, it just means that white and European is the standard. Like when white women are described, they're just called beautiful. When Asian women or like, for example, when um, when Lupita, like when Lupita, and, you know, when she was she was getting on all those magazine covers and she was getting all these like cosmetic spokes deal, uh, spokesperson deals, they just kept calling her exotic and interesting, you know? And it's like, they think that it's flattering, but it's like, what are you really saying? And then um, I think like why this is just particularly getting like a strong response from females 
in general. I think, yeah, a, a good parallel is, like, with the Jeremy Lin case. I would say that probably Jeremy Lin talked to a lot of black males, but probably didn't talk to a lot of black females, because I think black females would have a very different response to Wasn't this. Wasn't his because... hairstylist um, a black female? Yeah, but I mean, I mean, like, I think that, like, when you talk about black hair in general, it's possible that black females would have a much more visceral response to it than a black male. That's true. Because, like, yeah. Because they, they end up, they're the ones that end up, like, not getting a job because of their hair more often than black men. Yeah, exactly. Braids are, like, braids and dreads are seen as unprofessional. A lot of, I think, the visceral response that, and I think the undertone that a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about, just in general, is just, like, this is about beauty, and it's just, like, so much of the Western female psyche just revolves around this concept of beauty, and, like, what is beautiful. And then... And then, like, who gets to own certain types of beauty and stuff like that. Okay, here's a, here's a point I want to make that is kind of more, uh, I guess, uh, like a devil's advocate point. Okay, so if white girls aren't allowed to wear cheapos or something, I, you know, there was, I think, a couple of weeks ago, there was at least a couple of articles about how for Asian women to get blonde hair, that was empowering and gave them permission to be beautiful and do whatever they want. And, you know, like most most uh, women generally all wear like things that would be considered like Western fashion. So if somebody asks like, well, how why is it OK for an Asian woman to wear, you know, basically like white girl clothes, dye their hair blonde, maybe even get blue contacts? I don't know. That's not that common, but some people do it. Uh, why is that OK? And why is not the other way OK? And if there's a double standard, isn't this just kind of like trying to carve out your own like zone of possessions that other people can have? So like what's mine is mine, but what's yours is also mine. I don't think that we're appropriating by wearing Western clothing. I think that we were forced to. For example, like the, the Philippines was colonized by Spain. And so suddenly Filipino men had to cut their hair short to be more like a European style. They, instead of wearing their traditional clothing and all their tattoos, all of that had to go away. Uh, our names went away. So I, I don't, I mean, and then when you come here to America, it's like there is a certain way of dressing that just, yeah, it's just Western clothing is just seen as an asset in order to get ahead or to just make it, not even get ahead, just to make it ahead. Mm -hmm. In terms of like the blonde hair and stuff, I feel like there's a lot of nuances in this thing that like this particular viewing on it from a superficial level doesn't really like really get at. So like the first one is that I think that dyeing your hair blonde for a lot of Asian women is a very like hyper conscious decision. You have to think about what you're I feel like a lot of Asian women really do think about what they're doing when they dye their hair blonde and they think about what kind of reaction they're going to be getting and how people are going to view them and stuff like that because they don't have any other choice but to view that decision of changing their physical appearance in that way. Whereas like the the other nuance is just that like in this situation with this woman, uh, with this girl wearing the cheap out, I think so much of the anger is that she has ignorance to think that this is okay. And she has the ignorance to not consider the feelings of the Asian American community. And I think that's what people are getting at. And then it turned into her refusal. Yeah. So would you say that if she apologized, uh, but still wore, I mean, I guess the picture was taken. Uh, I mean, like by the time people saw it, prom it probably already happened. But if she uh, had apologized, but say wore it a few times even after, but acknowledged people's feelings, would that have been okay? I think, I honestly think that appropriation is okay. As long as you say, as long as you say, why does this make sense 
in your narrative as a human being? And then also, why does this make sense? Why are you doing it? And acknowledging this might look like this. And I acknowledge that this is strange or something like that. I Basically, I acknowledge your feelings. I acknowledge this is probably what's going on in your head. But this is what this means to me and I'm going to do it anyway. Honestly, I think everybody has a different, like a different radar um, and tolerance for that. But if somebody did that, I would say that that's a hyper-conscious decision and I'm okay with it. Her response to all of the comments that she was getting and the tweets that she was getting, it really reminded me of this this tone-deaf article by Jenny Evans that was published in The Atlantic, I think, back in 2015. She just completely dismissed all the complaints of cultural appropriation, and she called the accusations, like, shrill after shrill wave of internet outrage and oversensitivity. She called the people pointing out appropriation the self-appointed guardians of culture who jealously track who owns what and instantly jump on transgressors. And then she's, I mean, she, the writer just went on to talk about how she found the accusations alarming and said she found the idea that she should stay in her own lane absolutely outrageous. And to me, it was like prom girl, the prom dress girl's, re, I don't remember her name. What's her name? It, it was an odd name. It's like Kazia, Kazia? Kazia? or yeah. something like that. So it's like Kazia's indignation and her entitlement. that re, That's what bothered me so much is that she, like the, the message that I was getting from her was just that. I'm going to wear what I'm going to wear and I don't want to have to feel bad about anything I do. You know, like she just completely disregarded the responsibility that people born of the cultures that she wants to borrow from have for it. People who were born into that culture, they feel a need to be a caretaker of that culture. Like you just feel that kind of responsibility. And for her to just like completely just stomp all over that, that's that's what really that's what made, she made me think of is just the entitlement, you know. They are raised that way. The thing I'm trying to balance out is I I am very sus- suspicious of th- of this kind of desire to by certain minority groups to m- essentially like merchandise their own culture and have almost like a race based IP protection and it's like only I may profit off of this for really no good reason other than like some vague ideas of heritage even if they're only you know very tangentially actually connected to their ancestral heritage and it, and it becomes more like a pure profit motive either in terms of money or like social media recognition or or anything like that can you give an example i mean like maybe like the bruno mars thing might be the extreme examples like this is a guy is making music that a lot of people like and you know obviously a lot of uh like black artists have worked with them and everything but it's just like by virtue of i actually don't know like what his ethnicity is he's filipino and puerto rican yeah uh, by virtue of not being black he like plain does not have right to do that. I think that gets pretty extreme in which... Oh, I see. So you're saying you don't agree with people who say, like, who draw the hard line, like, no, you cannot participate and that's it. Yeah, because I think I think there's like a, like a material interest, which is, yeah, there, are, and I'm very suspicious of that. On the other hand, again, I go back to what David Chang said about just having this kind of like anger at seeing other people profit and benefit off of, of something that was yours and, and for much of your life was actually something that caused embarrassment and pain. And I think of like food and what it has done for Asian Americans, especially Asian men. I, I often link uh, the culinary scene to is to Asian men what hip hop is to black men. Yeah, because like, <laughs> the only place it seems where being an Asian guy just automatically gives you bonus points. Just because you have an Asian face, people assume you're like good at chopping up sushi or or like cooking up like a like pho or something. And it has elevated a lot of people to positions of power. Like David Chang, through like the food scene, made this 
uh, great TV series in which he talked very frankly about race, which I, I can't imagine a lot of other Asian Americans, whether they're actors or politicians, would ever feel free to do so. So I'm like trying to balance those two things out. And it's a tough, tough thing to do. Shameless plug, Me Teen and Philip did a podcast about David Chang's Ugly Delicious. You can go back in our archives and find it. <laughs> it's one of my favorite pods that, that we have done. Yeah. So what do you think about this? So the U.S. has been the world's leading cultural exporter because of rock and roll, hip hop, and Hollywood. But in recent years, something that Christina brought up also, like the U.S. has actually been following a lot of other countries for culture, Korea and Japan, for example. We're starting to get more TV programming from Korea and Japan, more music, more fashion. I don't know if you remember that book that um, this Japanese woman named Marie Kondo wrote about the art of decluttering. Hey, she and I have the same last name. <laughs> well, my, my pseudonym, pseudonym, at least. <laughs> but it was a huge hit. And then there's this YouTube video of her just like folding clothing and it has like 4 million views. So since her YouTube videos are such big hits, Netflix is has green light for her own reality TV show. And then, like, another example is Japanese streetwear. They love American workwear so much. They took it, they perfected it, and they made it into an industry all its own. And so it's it's not just copies of American fashions anymore. It is actually its own, like, the Japanese streetwear scene is its own vibrant industry. And now all the fashion-conscious people who can afford it are just buying it all up. So are these examples of when borrowing from other cultures can be a positive? Because, like... I would say, yeah. We'll probably see like a generational clash because you probably have young kids who grow up in a world where, uh, as you said, hip hop is, it just completely dominates pop music. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, A lot of like, whether it's like Korean dramas or anime or fashions coming in from Asia, this is what they grow up with thinking is the mainstream. And like white culture was like, you know, like, polo shirts that was like cool like 30 years ago or something yeah. so this is the dominant culture they grow up in and so they they think what we grew up thinking of, of like white culture like oh we're not appropriating we're like forced into by like almost like peer pressure and social expectations to partake in it they might actually be thinking that about like the the non-white cultures and then older people might see it and then there's like a, a, div- like a clash of viewpoints because their lived experiences are so different. I mean, my kids definitely are growing up with a completely different experience than me. I think that almost every, all the media that they consume is Asian. Yeah, all the kids' books that they read feature Asian protagonists. All the YouTube videos that they watch, all the Netflix um, shows that they watch, it's like all Asian kids. And like, of course, all their classmates and them, they're like really into anime and like manga and everything. Yeah, because I'm, I'm looking at like, not that I know too much about food, but I, I bet if you're like a, a really young and you want to be like a chef or something, the days of like the, the, you know, fancy like linen, like French dining, that's like very 1980s. Like, yeah, nobody, nobody wants to do wants that to anymore. Do everybody, that. Yeah. everybody wants to be David Chang or Eddie well, Huang. Roy, I mean, Roy Choi has a children's book that's really great. We have it. And a lot of a lot of the kids, a lot of kids know who he is. (laughs) They're just like like these Asian chefs are like household names now. And it's because they they exist in the places where kids are like they exist in YouTube. They exist on Netflix. They exist in like children's books. Yeah. Um, uh, Christina, you were saying about that emotional reaction. I'm just thinking, is there a way that uh, those people can have their cathartic moment? I think it's very neat. I think Asian Americans have just been like suppressing and not been allowed to say what we feel for so long. I think they're, they should definitely be allowed to do that uh, without like stepping the bounds uh, over the line in which like uh, uh, you end up like with like a Bruno Mars incident where you have these like strict 
like no cultural exchange at all kind of things. Yeah. Uh, actually, I was also thinking about the Bruno Mars incident and your criticism of it, just because I also understand how I I think I understand your frustration with appropriation getting thrown around everywhere, and I do think that often it is an overused term. I think in that particular case, there was a weird conflation of two phenomenons that I do think were related. So, like for example, I do think that it's it is possible to argue that Bruno Mars didn't necessarily have Bruno Mars probably had the safest album of the year and wasn't necessarily the best. <laughs> I think that a lot of people were saying, and it might. But that's but that's nothing. I like so just because you have like personal. Pre- I mean, music is so subjective. So you have a personal preference, and you don't like his music. I don't think that's any reason to like discredit him right. by calling him a cultural appropriator. Right. Right. Of course. But I do think that an argument could be made that, um, sorry, that's a dog. But anyway, um, I do think that, (laughs) that I do think that an argument could be made that this is kind of indicative of a larger phenomenon where black artists aren't getting recognized, period. And then that could be what the frustration this woman was describing is. But she did conflate it with cultural appropriation, which was not necessarily what Bruno Mars was doing and that's what the whole conversation was about the whole thing the whole explosion on the internet which is similar to the chipow dress is bruno mars is appropriating black culture like that's all the headlines i would see everywhere yeah so then i think it's like one frustration was kind of misrepresented as cultural appropriation when that's not necessarily the the case and maybe that is also happening i don't think that that's happening here But I do think that that happens in a lot of conversations about cultural appropriation that Mm -hmm. then come off to other groups as you're just trying to commodify your own. You're just trying to uh, place like ridiculous ownership over your own culture and eliminate free thought. Like the frustration is really that black artists never get recognized when they do good work or like people of color in the workplace never get recognized when they do good work or stuff like that. But then like it's hidden under this guise of this is cultural appropriation. Uh, I think one thing uh, we can discuss is, is like cultural appropriation and the free exchange of ideas, which is like, which is, you, it's like the equivalent of like talking about free speech when you're, when you're talking about offensive language. I think it's always brought up and who can really argue, right, with free exchange of creative ideas. But I mean, there's like, people should, they shouldn't pretend that they can't see gray areas. Like, for example, you know, the, uh, the Death Note thing with Netflix. Honestly, I had no problem with that. Um, you're, you're taking I like... I did not either. Yeah, it's just like, it, yeah, it's a Japanese story, but they converted it to like I think like an American suburban story like what is wrong with that um I think it would have been problematic if oh I hate using that word but um it would have been a problem if let's say they they kept everything else Japanese but they just change maybe the the hero or heroine into a white person do you think that the problem is that people don't know what cultural appropriation really is or do you think that we can't agree on like a universally accepted definition i think it's the second and it tends to get used when people just kind of as christina said they 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 feel emotionally upset and yeah and they don't really know how to express it so yeah so i think with something like death note i think a lot of complaints will come from the entertainment industry in which a lot of asian actors will see this as a lost opportunity for them and they'll and i'm not trying to say they're plotting but they'll try to frame it as this is a big loss for the community because we could have had asian actors in it which like sure but like that could be said of any movie really and i don't want 
it it would be rather ridiculous if you said if any uh like creative idea has origins in another like culture, then you have to like import it on a like one to one ratio, which then would create like the the creative equivalent of like tariffs going up and like a creative Great Depression. I think. Yeah, so like like Death Note, I thought no problem. When you get to something like The Last Samurai, then yeah, problem because now you just <laughs> change the hero into a white. Now he's the conqueror of Japan or whatever. I think that's a problem. But if you want to completely whitewash something, I think generally I think it's fine. One of the biggest problems with something like the like The Last Samurai is that when you go in the the other way, for example, when you do like if it's okay to have Tom Cruise in Japan in that time period. And then for Hollywood to say, oh, yeah, that's that's perfectly acceptable. And then you have like a Jane Austen movie or something like some sort of period piece in Europe. And there's there's no people of color at all for them to say it's absolutely unbelievable that a person of color would exist in this era in this country. <laughs> you know what they do? They always like scour the history books for like some obscure footnote for like the one white guy <laughs> yeah. who was in like Africa <laughs> or India at the time. It's like, it, see, it could have happened. But see, honestly, like when I watch Jane Austen or if I watch Hamlet, I don't like particularly want to see people of color. That kind of sounds bad, but I don't when pe- when especially when actors of colors say like we should be in Shakespeare and things like that. I mean, I understand that from from their professional interest, but he's the Prince of Denmark. <laughs> Let's keep it, you know, generally faithful. And I think the problem with that um, saying that let's say like an Asian person should be able to play Hamlet on on moral grounds is then when you say well then a white person can't be in The Last Samurai or something it just looks hypocritical and selfish I think that's my issue I mean you guys can disagree <laughs> that's that's interesting because do you think that there's there might be a difference there in that like there is a bias because certain works get canonized and other works don't get canonized and the reason that why some works get canonized is because they're white and why other works don't get canonized is because they're not white so then like there is like a systemic bias in that field i would say that if something is canonized then it's fair game in terms of like from a theatrical perspective there are so many just different renderings and adaptations of shakespeare that i don't really see why having one Asian or one black Hamlet would ruin the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, but there's only like one movie about the Great Wall of China or something. And then if if there were like 500 different types of this type of movie, I'd be down to have one of the white one of the one of the people be white, like one of the saviors of China be white if everybody else was Asian or like if every other savior of China was Asian if like somehow the Great Wall of China was canonized in that way. Yeah, I, I agree with that point. I think, but then I think the wiser uh, move would be to argue it from more like a, a professional point of view. Hey, like these jobs simply are not out there. Because I think once you adopt a moralizing tone, I think that's when you start getting into these very abstract ideas and it becomes very easy to uh, equate uh, an uneven situation. And also about the the like having a white like hero in, um, in like Asian movies. The thing is like, I think China... Like, like Asia does that occasionally and then Asian Americans find out about it and mm. to us we think because we only know maybe that one movie or maybe it's a particularly high budget movie like something like Flowers of War mm. which which uh, had a white protagonist and an Asian American get really upset whereas for the Asian audiences as you said it's like one of a billion <laughs> so yeah. it, like the movie so it, and, and often those movies tank anyway because the, the Asian audiences don't want to see it and, and like the American audiences don't want to see it but <laughs> yeah that, that's interesting in which 
like from our perspective, it looks like, oh my God, they take our stuff here and they're taking it over there when really like the Asian audiences have so much to choose from. Yeah, I think that also explains some sort of like differential in how this specific Chi Pao incident was like received in China versus like America. Oh, we should also talk about that. <laughs> I think yeah, like, quickly address um, that. Yes. It was really funny because I was talking to my mom on the phone the other day and she actually brought it up. <laughs> she was like, yeah, what do you what do you feel about the Chi Pao incident? I think it was a beautiful dress. <laughs> <laughs> I love my mom. She's like really fun, but... Yeah, I, and then, like, from that perspective, it, like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it, it kind of goes with Oxford's theory that she has no fear of replacement, so she can just look yeah. at the dress. Yeah, exactly. Like, she didn't really internalize, like, this is not something I'm supposed to be doing. Like, yeah, she basically just didn't have an, she lacked an emotional response to it, which was interesting, because I can't say I didn't not expect that from her, but... I didn't, I didn't expect her to bring it out, actually, in our conversation, so... And you know what the kind of maybe sobering truth is? That, uh, like, the people who are most upset about this were Asian Americans. But we are, especially, like, second-generation Americans. So we are, I don't know, uh, 20 million Asian Americans. How many of us are second-generation? We're very outnumbered. I, I think only about... Yeah, I think a third are, are American-born. So compare that to all of Asia, which is, like, billions of people, mm-hmm. versus, like... America, which is like hundreds of millions, we are on a very lonely island and nobody really gets what we're experiencing. So we are a rather insignificant nation. They interviewed people in China to prove their own point. Yeah. And that's obviously taking things out of context. Exactly. Something that Jess and I have been talking about a lot is the entire wellness industry. Every day, some new supplement or tea that promises health and beauty and weight loss pops up, for example. We always talk about moon juice supplements um, or hum nutrition, like all the wellness stuff that they sell at Free People and Urban Outfitters. And if you read the packaging on these products, hardly any of these companies acknowledge where they learned about all the benefits of Chinese herbal medicine, which is all it is. Instead of acknowledging that that's where they learned all, all of these these things is that it's it's like a whole bunch of cosmic new age crap, you know, it's all just, it's an appropriation of Chinese holistic medicine, which for decades was treated as a joke by the medical industry and it was called hokey and it was like relegated to people's like, I don't know, some like back room in Chinatown, you know, but now suddenly it's like, it's selling for like, for one ounce, one ounce of it is like $40 at um, free people, you know, and the benefits are real, but they're real because now that white people are the ones selling the Chinese herbs, you know, it's kind of a teaser of something that Jess and I are working on right now. Well, I guess it's getting late. Christina should probably get to studying. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's your exam on? Um, it's uh, deceptively called like Math One Hundred One. So, really? Oh my god! About, like, In junior it's year. About... <laughs> I know, right? Um, but it's like the intro to proof class. And then um, it's on sets, groups, and topology. So <laughs> um, I was supposed to take it like sophomore year, but um, it conflicted with another class that's required. So I just decided to take the other class. And now I'm like the oldest person in that class. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> like everyone else is like a freshman or a sophomore. I do want to recall like my greatest exam moment. I had an exam uh, scheduled back to back on a day. And I didn't want to study for two subjects at the same time. <laughs> so what I decided was I would take the first one 
but then sleep strategically so I would not sleep again until the next one and I would spend that entire time gap studying for the next exam. No, I don't no, think it was that's a such a bad idea. idea. But did I did it, it and I think I got A's. I think I got A's. Albeit at a very great inflated school, I'll admit. But I do think it worked. <laughs> that's like, that's so rough. I feel like, um, I don't know why, but like, I feel like my body went through a really weird change once I turned like 20, where like, I have to sleep like eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah, I and have like, to sleep. I'm no good if I don't get like eight hours of sleep every night. I just, I can't do it. Yeah, and I started getting tired at, like, 11. It's, like, really weird because when I was, like, a freshman... What? You're only 21. How can it be? I don't know. But, <laughs> oh, like, that's right. You're freshman, so young. I was able to, like... When I was a freshman, I was able to just, like, go through the entire night, like, not having to do, like, anything, just keeping on working and working and, like, just going through. And then, like, now, it's just this really weird change that, like, just my body changed when I turned, like, 20. And then, like, I had to sleep my metabolism slowed down like it was just 20 no way so weird and then my mom thought i had a thyroid problem so then she gave me like (laughs) (laughs) she gave me these like thyroid supplements like i think i don't know maybe they're like an iodine supplement or something and she's like take these so then i took them and then like actually it improved a little bit so maybe i did have a thyroid deficiency issue but it was like it was really funny Oh, thanks for listening. That was the Escape from Plan A podcast. Um, you can find our articles at planamag.com and you can um, subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, um, Google Play, whatever. So if you do it and you like us, please give us five stars and you know, read our articles. We also have every Friday, we, there's a playlist of Asian artists, usually hip hop by our very own John Kim. Fuck yeah, Fridays. So yeah, until next time. Later. If kimchi can become popular in my lifetime, then anything can happen with Korean food. But I think it's inevitable that you're going to see Korean fried chicken on menus at like Ruby Tuesdays or TGI Fridays. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I think it's, one hand it's fantastic and on the other hand it makes me sad. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. Progress. Progress. Is it? <laughs>